You're listening to Portfolio Builders, a Wealth Cap Holdings podcast about long-term wealth building and financial independence. Here are your hosts, Chris Evans and Taylor Welch. How's it going, everybody? Chris Evans here, Portfolio Builders podcast, and I am excited about our guest today, Mr. Garrett Gunderson. He is an entrepreneur, financial advocate, author of the New York Times bestselling financial blockbuster, Killing Sacred Cows, and also What Would the Rockefellers Do? He's a chief wealth officer of WealthFactory.com. Uh, he has appeared on hundreds of radio programs and hundreds of newspaper articles, as well as on television shows such as ABC News Now, Your World with Neil Cavuto on Fox, CNBC Squawk on the Street, and First Business. Um, it was a great conversation that I had with Garrett today. And it took a little bit of a different turn and twist than I was originally expecting because I think we connected on a lot of different levels. And so if you're an entrepreneur, you were an investor, maybe a husband, spouse, you're uh, a parent, I think this is going to be a unique episode for you. Um, and so it's interesting to talk to someone who's kind of on a similar journey that I am, who is a successful entrepreneur, investor, but also um, has a family. To have those deeper conversations about life um, and the meaning of life and actually extracting and getting full enjoyment out of life. You know, a lot of times as investors, entrepreneurs, we think it's all about the hustle and all about the grind, but that's missing the whole point, right? So I really enjoyed this, this interview and this time with Garrett. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Garrett Gunderson, what is up, my man? How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm watching the chaos in the world and, uh, you know, continuing to be productive. So can't complain about that. Well, it's timely that we have you on because of everything that's going on. The markets are going crazy. What it, I think the market dropped 2,000 points just this last Monday. Uh, there's just like, it's insanity in the world right now. <laughs> so It is. It is. And what are, you, and what look, are your thoughts on this? It shows how fragile our markets are when they're based upon a secondary market. So in the primary market, you know, you basically have the original intent was a company trying to raise capital to expand its operations. I feel like the intents changed over time to become a way for yep. people to get rich, right? To exit right. and cash out essentially. But after that initial public offering, it's all secondary market, which means it's all really governed on how much money is flowing into those companies and what's the perception of the value. And so mm -hmm. when we have even something that is perceived as a threat, because at the time we're recording this, you know, yeah. we, we haven't seen a very big, you know, coronavirus level, you know, in the United States. But because of what happened in Italy and China, there's a lot of people that are concerned and it becomes yeah. a big yeah. part of their conversation. And so all of that consumer confidence gets shot and then they go, what could happen? And really, it was a lot of hedge funds selling off positions that were mm -hmm. going to happen. I mean, this just, you know, accelerated it. And the market's been overvalued for an extraordinary long, a very long period of time. Right. And so, you know, people got scared and they and triggered and, you know, and then you watch it kind of go and be volatile at this point. Um, I personally don't have, you know, any money in the stock market, nor have I had any money in the stock market. And that's because there's a lot of discounts on private businesses that you don't get with, you know, major corporations that are selling on a public yeah. exchange. 
So I've got a lot of questions on this topic. Uh, before we dive deep into this stuff, um, I want to talk to you about wealth building, protecting your wealth, especially during turbulent times like this. Can you just give your two-minute story to folks um, and just kind of lay out why people should be listening to you, especially in a time like this? Well, look, I, in 1998, I started my financial career. And I was just a product peddling salesman that really bought the story of the stock market. So mm. you got to think from 90 to 98, the stock market had its heyday. That was like the best eight years ever. So that's what right. I'm growing up in. When I'm looking at the returns and I'm thinking, why would you do anything other than this? And so right. I'm selling that <laughs> stuff from 98 to 99. And then guess what? The year 2000 comes and mm. all of that starts to you know get disintegrated and it didn't yeah, yeah. stop there it went from 2001 to 2002 where there were double digit losses all those years now the good news is that the type of clientele i had cuz i was really young were family friends and uh, you know ultimately i didn't have a lot of money that i had invested because i was mm -hmm. from a small town and i was 19 years old but I didn't like telling them the stories of they were in it for the long haul or the market was on sale or, you know, I remember the CEO of a major investment corporation saying, I wish I had even more money because of the sale. And that was, by the way, in May of 2000. So if he really believed what he said, he had two and a half more years of pretty substantial downturns. And so I began to ask different questions. I got everyone out of the market between March and May, but one of my clients and had him on the sidelines. And that's when I decided look, I'm going to have to really invest in my education because I can't just sell some story and learn how to build rapport. Yeah, yeah. I've got to figure out how people really do this and what are the wealthy people doing? And I, I actually leveraged my young age to my advantage because people are willing to speak to me, teach me, take interest in me mm -hmm. because I was so young at the time. Gotcha. So you've, you've been through a lot in regards to seeing the market, um, the catastrophe that's happened in the market. Where has that brought you today in what you're passionate about and educating people and how you're helping people, entrepreneurs like me and people who have money or people who want to have money, they want to grow their wealth. Where has that brought you to today? Look, it's, it's brought me to a place where I've seen through the information that most people buy into that is actually at a 95% failure rate. The notion of people should just set their money aside and wait for 30 years and hope that compound interest will kick in has failed people. And yet it's still purported to this miracle. And the only miracle is we believe it because the institutions are killing it wow. with it. They're getting people like no institution tries to compound their interest. What they try to do is compound their cash flow. And we've been sold this bill of goods and story that it's all about, you know, passive income from the standpoint of just waiting for 30 years and then turning that tap on right. for the cash flow to come in. And the reality is it actually trains us to do the opposite. It gets people in an accumulation mindset versus a cash flow mindset. And I think that we really have to learn how to take responsibility for our finances. Otherwise, it's never going to work. And part of that responsibility is being a bit active and responsible in creating that cash flow along the way, not 30 years from today. And when a bank takes on money, they might pay you 1% and turn around and sell it for 3%. They are doing it to create cash flow. They're going to create incentives to pay them back even faster. So they're playing by a different set of rules. And I've seen the rules of the game, and I've seen how the game is rigged, and I see that there's a way to cut out the middleman, and I see there's a way to take back control over people's financial life so that they can actually 
be in charge of their life and that they've got to have purpose at their forefront if they really want to truly be happy and, and maximize those profits. And so college isn't going to do the work, isn't going to do the trick. You know, uh, retirement plans aren't going to do the trick. So I've got a, a lot ahead of me of, of what I'm trying to tackle and take on because I think I can help people change their financial future and their family's destiny if they can really understand that hard work with the wrong philosophy equals bankruptcy. So what is the right philosophy that allows them to maximize what they're up to and attain wealth, even if they started like me from a small coal mining town without any inheritance? Dude, you're spitting fire right now. <laughs> I'm, I, think I am fired up about <laughs> stuff right now. I'll tell you that much. Well, you know, it's, I think it's such an important message, man, because, you know, listen, I come from, uh, a, I'd say a middle-class, maybe lower to middle-class family. My, my dad was a military dude. He worked so hard for so many years and a lot of generations that I come from the same thing. And to be honest and <clears throat> transparent, there's not really a lot to show for that years and years and years, decades of hard work. And, um, would you say that this is a part of your mission to take People like that who have been sold that bill of goods, like, listen, there is a different way. There is a better way. And if that is the case, what would that better way be, would you say? Look, there, there's definitely a different and better way. And let me break it down into a few steps. Okay. First, we have to change our aim, right? The aim of retirement is a faulty aim. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why people buy into retirement is because of the industrial age. The industrial age had some of the worst jobs that were so physically right. demanding that people were dying and, mm -hmm. you know, lifespans were shorter. So here you've got people that are going, look, I'm just going to put in my time and then one day I can start enjoying life. And the reality is they miss out on life along the way. And my dad taught me you can never buy back the memories that you never had. Right. So that's the first piece, right? Then the second piece is what is that aim? The aim would be economic independence. And the reason economic independence is critical is it's because it's a state where you have enough cash flow coming in from an asset or assets or from a business that doesn't require your daily involvement to cover your basic expenses. When you're economically independent, then you can make different financial decisions, have a different uh, reduction of stress. You typically have better cooperation with the spouse because you're like, okay, if I want to be a little bit more aggressive in my the pursuit of my purpose or in my right. vision or in something I'm going to do, it doesn't infringe upon lifestyle. It doesn't put a home at risk or the types of vehicles you drive, the type of food that you eat or the type of trips you take. Economic independence isn't freedom, but it mm -hmm. creates a degree of freedom of choice from day to day to choose what you're going to do. So if our aim moves to economic independence, then we become more about investing for cash flow. But there are steps before cash flow. The first is boosting your bottom line by looking at four I's, the letter I, the IRS, interest, investments, and insurance. Where can you keep more of what you make by structuring those properly, by being intelligent with your financial decisions? Because the first place people should invest is in their skill set as far as their career and what they can do to provide value in the world. The second place is in their financial IQ so that they know what to do in their finances. And it doesn't mean to learn about every investment out there. It means let's begin with showing people how to keep more of what they make, those four right. I's, right? How do you save tax? How do you restructure loans? How do you pay off loans efficiently if you do that? You know, mm -hmm. how do you re reduce drag with investments or protect the downside so that when there's a, some virus that comes out, you don't have to get wiped out with years and right. years of your work, right? And then right. insurance, where's there duplicate coverage of costs? So, so it really begins with a different aim, then it's about cash flow. And then when you have economic independence, 
um, the whole time through, you're really investing in yourself. But when you're economically independent, here's what's cool. All your active income could be reinvested in building more assets, which is going to accelerate and exponentially grow what you're up to because you don't have to earn a dollar to pay the next bill. Less stress, more focus on opportunity um, rather than just making ends meet. More abundance comes into our life. And that's really the game that if people start to play, they end up in a better situation. So is it only entrepreneurs and people at the top that can can build that kind of life? Or is that something that anybody can do? You know, like my brother, he owns a garage door business that doesn't do a lot of revenue. How could just kind of your everyday person uh, take advantage of this philosophy? And, and that's who it's got to impact is the everyday person because mm. the highly affluent and wealthy, I mean, they're already kind of playing a different game, right? Right. They're, like when I went and saw a family office when I was 22 years old, which was, you know, for family office, you have to be worth probably 300 million to have one of your own, or even this one that had a lot of, right. you know, more clients, you had to be worth $30 million. They were already focused on tax efficiency and protecting the downside of their investments. And right. you know, they already had this insight. So it really comes down to the common person that's out there trying to make ends meet. And if you have a business, well, the question becomes two things. Number one, how do you more how do you create a, a way to deliver more value to your existing customers? Or two, how do you reach more customers? And so, you know, it, it comes down to how, you know, if it's garage doors, well, what is it going to be that keeps it from being just trading time for money, right? Like, okay, yeah, I yeah. show up, I bid a job, I get a job, I get the garage door, and then you go to the next one. That is going to limit the level of production and profitability. So, yeah, yeah. you know, what, what is it that could be done to add more value, to monetize more, like to increase skill set? Is there a complementary business? Is there a strategic partnership? Is there a way to, you know, leverage the internet to become a different type of supplier and provider? Like we have to ask different questions. It's just yeah, a different yeah. world. It's not really, hey, we don't need as much physical labor as we used to because of technology and the advancement, right. and that's going to continue to happen. So what we do need is intelligence around how value is delivered and how that value gets is received. And, you know, it's really hard to acquire customers today, but it's easier to keep them. So if you do have a customer, what additional value could you provide for them? Are there other resources based upon what they now trust in you that you could provide and have strategic alliances or relationships with that actually could bring additional lines of revenue or a, or a longevity to that customer. And so, I mean, there's not an easy answer to that because it's a different way of thinking. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, that's the question. Which the thing that you, you know, and, and for everybody listening, go get Garrett's books. I'm loving um, What Would the Rockefellers Do? Killing Sacred Cows. Great books are on Amazon. Go grab them right now. We'll jump into some of that in just a second. But one of the things that you really hit on is, you know, in the book, and then also just a few minutes ago was the self-investment and the self-education. Right. And I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that I see so many people are missing out on. Um, and I'm, I'm curious in your thoughts on this, right? There's a lot of people now who are talking about, they're, they're kind of harping on schools and the education system. And so I'm interested in your thoughts of this, especially going back to the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's been strategic in 
how the system has been set up, both taxes, education, everything, to keep people down at a certain level, only to service the government or, or a certain part of, of the economy or society. Do you think that's strategic? Um, or is that too much conspiracy theory? Well, let's, let's talk about the real practicality behind it. Okay. Um, John Dewey, who's really been you know, the father of the modern education system in the United States, at least, completely intended that 80% of people would go through school and learn how to be an employee. Mm. 17% would be dropouts and 3% could still be entrepreneurs. And so I do feel like, you know, the memorization of when I went to school and, you know, and the way that, you know, like even when I went to college, general education that is very antiquated, like there wasn't enough education on how do you monetize your skills? How do you mm. develop your skills? How do you expose your skills? Instead, we're learning topical things at a very, you know, surface level compared to what it really takes to provide value out there. And I feel like a lot of life today has to be a lot more about self-discovery and personal yeah. development so that we have the confidence to go out there and provide All that right. value. And there's just not enough of that. Communication Dude. skills, how to connect with people, how to build deep and meaningful relationships, how to utilize technology yes. to leverage a message. Like these are the things like public speaking, like doing, learning stand-up comedy. There's so many things that I'm doing right now that actually help me to engage in relationships and the reality is half the time, like I took my son to LA or had four meetings and he's 12 and one was with my comedy agent. Another one was, was a pretty famous comedian. Another one was with uh, a singer that, that performs with the John Mayer band. And then, you know, and, and mm. another one was a, a guy that's the heir to Hanna-Barbera. And ultimately what I asked him after the four meetings, I said, did you notice how much time we talked about business versus the time we talked about life? The mm. time we talked about relationships and people right. and lessons. I'm like, I'm like, I didn't bring them a bunch of statistics. I didn't bring them pie charts. I didn't bring right. them, like instead, it's how do we connect as human beings? And I think right. those people who are adaptable learn how to connect with others and be able to embrace and enhance their own personal creativity own the future. It's those characteristics. So for anybody listening, would you say that is the number one thing you have to develop is, is understanding the importance of uh, really self-development, self-education, self-investment. Is that where people start? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I look at, I learned some things in the classroom, but I've been sure. through so many things that have been so exponentially more valuable from strategic coach and genius network and another thing called baby bathwater Institute and, right. you know, a thing called great life and landmark and like, you know, just one-on-one -on -one sessions that I've done and mentors that I've had that were like, I learned so much from that. And we just got to have this notion that there's a lot of the education life is outside of the classroom. My most valuable experiences in college were the interactions that happen outside of right. class, the relationships I built and the one-on-one -on -one conversations with professors to the parties I hosted at my, at my uh, duplex that I owned. And like, like there's just, there was so much about social dynamics. And when I was president of the Greek council or vice president of my fraternity, like there was so much outside of the classroom. And look, mm -hmm. I'm not discounting the value of reading a book. I'm not discounting the value of listening to things to get insights with, with knowledge. I am though emphasizing that mm -hmm. we, we have discounted self-discovery, personal mm. confidence, enhancing our skill sets, investing in ourselves. And instead, we've been more of a, and it's sad to see how much we're a color within the lines, 
you know, get a degree, follow the lines, like, and that especially happens with investing. People set yeah, it yeah. and forget it. They're told to invest early, often, and always. They're investing in companies they know that, nothing about. They have zero control over, limited cash flow. They lock their money away because you're right. They're governed by taxes. Well, if I don't put it in my retirement plan, I get taxed on right. it. Well, guess what? You're still going to get taxed on it, but <laughs> it's a false tax incentive. And yeah, yes, yeah. there's a degrees of control in that. And I'm not even saying those degrees of control come from the government. I'm saying they're they're definitely embraced by the institutions because the institutions get to lock your money away and they get a fee off of that money, whether you make money or not. And there's restrictions for you getting out early. So what? just from a business model, they've been brilliant, right? Yeah. They're genius because yeah. it doesn't take their money to make money. It doesn't take risk on them to, to make money. That's all put onto the customer right. and they're taking fees off you and the government. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's crazy is it doesn't take much these days to be above average. Right. Right, it's like you, if you have a little bit of confidence, if you have a little bit more perspective than the next person, then really the world is your oyster because of so many people who are, they just live average and they, they accept that information that you're saying that, you know, kind of standard um, in society today. Funny enough, I had a friend who asked me, he's, he's successful in construction, he builds houses, he makes great money. And he was just asking me, man, this guy told me that I should put money into the market and establish a 401k and, Dude, that is like standard information, average information that most people accept. And if you just do a little bit extra, take maybe one extra step to get somebody else's perspective, how much that can absolutely change your life. And so, dude, it's, it's awesome that you are out there and you're dispersing and dispensing all this information. For me, it's a form of leverage that I look at. You, how, how much time, effort, energy, maybe probably money, like all of the above that you spent into discovering this stuff and how valuable it is that people listening to this need to realize that you've started to disseminate that information to books like What Would the Rockefellers Do, Killing Sacred right. Cows, and I'm sure a lot of other stuff that you're doing. So when I heard, when I, I'd seen this book, I think Taylor had originally told me about it, uh, What Would the Rockefellers Do? I was very intrigued because at the time I was reading that, I think that big ass book about John Rockefeller. Um, so I was very fascinated because he's such a fascinating character. So talking about the Rockefeller method, the method, can you just break that down real quick, what that is and what we should take away from that philosophy as people who are living today? Um, and then especially the entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and, and just all, all around investors listening today. So there, I was watching a video with David Rockefeller yesterday, you know, an older one. Um, and he was talking about how he didn't know his family was rich. He found out at school. And, and it's because it was not a given that he just got the money. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, I wasn't flying first class. You know, he's like, wow. he's like, and the thing is, like, I got critiqued. I was listening to this podcast while I was flying to London and ironically, on the podcast, they were critiquing Gordon Ramsay, the chef, for putting yeah, his yeah. kids in coach while he's flying first class. And my kids were sitting in coach while I was flying first class. <laughs> and I found it so I'm comical. guilty, dude. I'm guilty. Right? I'm like, why would I? And my kids, when we walked on the plane, they're like, hey, why? That's unfair that you guys get to go up there. I'm like, no, it's unfair yeah. even on this flight, Lucky Sperm Club. Like, I'm going up there because I wrote a check. When you can write a check, you get to go up there, you know? Right. Now, my, my youngest, my 12-year-old, just he did get a fly first class to LA. But the only reason was, we had an issue when we we're in Guatemala in December, where he had a big flight credit. And so he decided mm. to use his flight credit for 
the upgrade and you know fine you got to sit by me it was all good but but like there was at least a small degree of earning right it, there's something right. happened so so anyway the rockefellers have done some pretty brilliant things and i you know i'm not into there's so much negative out there as well mm -hmm. i get it so i've even had people say well why don't you write about the rothschilds i'm like whoo that is a deep, deep hole that I wasn't willing to research yeah. and go down. You know, it gets a little bit crazy. But the the Rockefeller thing was more like understanding that they have family retreats. Mm. They meet and talk about like what's going on in their life and what their values are, and they t and they create traditions that uh, enrich the family and create right. ways to prepare people to receive you know inheritances down down the road, but from a place of opportunity versus a place of entitlement. They also, ha you know, mm. they have kind of that infrastructure there and they have a family office. And, you know, from what I could tell, they're really the ones that invented it. The Vanderbilts didn't have a family office. They squandered that wealth. And mm. the Rockefellers have a family office, which is the financial team that worked just for their family. Now, right. that's where it kind of came from. Now, you know, it's hard to have $300 million and be able to do that. But now we build a wealth factory, a virtual family office that says, hey, we're willing to work with people that would never have that opportunity. We've actually got it all the way down to $100,000 of income where we're providing family office services for, wow. which is, you know, that was, that's basically, that was a 16 and a half year process, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, it took a long time. And, <laughs> and, and, and that's really cool because that's a big part of what the Rockefellers would do. They also store their cash in the place that a lot of banks store their cash which is, you know, cash value insurance, but a very specific guaranteed type. They use that death benefit to replenish the trust and buy them on, on, the, on kids when they're 30 days old in the Rockefeller family so that it comes back in regardless of what happens with the market or if their businesses don't do as good as they expected or a situation mm -hmm. like right now with the coronavirus, you know, you don't have downs, you don't have losses during that time, which means you now have liquid cash to capitalize. So there's a lot of things the Rockefellers would do. And, you know, John Rockefeller is really about making petroleum affordable to the common man. And right. what that is, is that early question, which is, how do I reach more people? How do I reach more people? And we look at that with the Ford family. How did they made the, you know, there were more cars back then than even today as far as brands. But the reason why the Model T crushed it was because it was affordable to the common person. Right. And I got to look at my advice. Like I, I was on YouTube uh, responding to comments because I'm pretty active on, I'm putting up five videos a week on YouTube. And, you know, I'm, I pretty much respond to 99% of the comments, even the snide ones. Uh, but I didn't know how to respond to someone said, Garrett looks like an LA drug dealer. Like, Thank you. I don't, I don't I don't know what that means, but uh, whatever. Uh, I guess it's the long hair, the beard. I don't know, but I'm responding to all that. And I, and I heard someone on there today. They're like, Hey, you know, this isn't for the common person. I said, well, go to askthemightynerds.com and type in your question. I want to make this advice that's been reserved for some of the highly affluent people accessible yep. to everybody. That's my objective. Like, I'm not actually trying to work with highly affluent people. And I know that's the right. opposite of what most financial people do, but they already get pretty good advice. Right. I'm looking for people that have a lot of money tied up in their business. And I don't do assets under management because I'm here to unveil what is the real framework that allows people to succeed, stack the odds in their favor, perpetuate wealth, you eliminate the financial bondage that's mm. passed from generation to generation. And you know what? The highly affluent have kind of figured that out to a decent degree. But what about everybody else, which is 99% of the population? Yeah. 
So what, what would you say is a mistake that I guess new money makes in regards to the second generation? So for example, I'm, I would say I'm new money. You know, I've come yeah, in, I've, I've, just, I've just figured out how to build multiple seven figure um, businesses. And that's kind of the, the situation. I have four kids and they, they have this conversation like, Oh, you and mom are in first class. So you, you and mom are going to Turks and Caicos. This month. You know what I mean? Like, What's a mistake and, and what can we learn from the Rockefellers in regards to how to do it right with our kids so they're just not entitled little butts yeah. who aren't bringing value to the world and society? The first thing that really taught me something in this realm was a, a book called Love and Logic, which is about yeah. raising kids, right? Yeah. And one of the most important things that book said was, you have kids learn the lesson while they're small, while there's less mm. at stake. And as parents, it's our natural inclination from what I've seen to try to protect our kids. Now there's the real things we right. want to protect our kids from, from true harm, right? From predators, from, from you know, um, harming themselves forever. Right. But, but the reality is if we overprotect, then we actually harm them because they don't build resiliency. They don't learn the lessons. And then they yeah. find out it's a really harsh world. So like, in the last month and a half, I've been like really stepping up as a leader for my family with my kids. We have a family meeting. We'll do that tonight. And in that family meeting, like we've created certain checklists. We've been talking to the kids about taking initiative and being able to follow through and not having to remind them and, you know, right. having the difficult conversations. And it really takes genuine effort. It does. And right. I, I'm taking my son to Asia for a month. It was supposed to be this month, but I uh, didn't want to get quarantined <laughs> in South Korea. So I moved it to November. But the reason I'm doing that is I want to talk to him about what it means to be a man and go do mm. some service projects with him in Vietnam and Cambodia, show him the effects of Dude, communism awesome. so that when kids talk about things they know nothing about, he sees it firsthand and how right. destructive it could be, right? Um, and so these are the these are the things is, is like if we leave our kids money, then we could be diminishing their purpose. Yeah. And what I don't want to leave my kids money. I want to leave them opportunity. And the reality is they have to take responsibility and initiative to ever utilize it because right. it's merely a bank. It's not an annuity. It's right. not a cash account. They get, there's no inheritance other than mm. philosophies, time, strategies, insights, rituals, traditions, symbols. Like we have a family crest. That's the, that's the legacy. Mm. And then I want to help them start a business. And, you know, right. whether they want to be an entrepreneur or not, that's fine. But I want them to see what it's like to be one so they understand if they work for someone what it's like and that they can learn the major lessons with it. And so we've already talked about that in our family. We have a family mission statement. We have family values, right? Like that's, that's what awesome, it is. Dude. Yeah, that's what it takes. And, dude, it's not easy. It's yeah, easier yeah. just to do work every day. It's easier to answer right. email. It's easier to go, you know, do anything else sometimes. Because it's hardest to get the people closest to us to listen sometimes. I mean, yeah. I had a meeting with my wife this morning. It's, our, it's a weekly purpose meeting. She's been supportive of the family for so long that she's lost sight of her own purpose to a certain mm. degree. And so I'm like, great, I'll move mountains. I'll do whatever it takes. Let's, let's create the space for that. You know, like I'm at a certain place where we have economic independence and I can yeah. do a lot of things utilizing technology. I don't have to travel as much. Uh, the kids are at a certain age. What's it going to take? And she actually has a brilliant idea for a book, which is really memoirs to our kids, but then becomes this insight for other parents yes. to understand real legacy and giving them little exercises of 
when to write a certain letter, what types of things mm. to do, right? Because people just don't know. There's not an instruction manual. So, you know, she'll be working on that for the next year. I've had her on a few podcasts with me. That's we, have awesome. a web, we have a webinar coming up on marriage and money. We, we can't even remember the last time we fought about money in our marriage. Like we can't because yeah. we figure that out to a certain degree. So, so yeah, this is, this is all part of it. And I think that leading by example um, is key and then not in not creating entitlements for them. Like they're not yeah. entitled to first class. I love that you've done that. Right. Yeah. And I have a friend, Rich Christensen wrote the book toes turn purple that his kids, when they turn uh, 16, it's on them to buy their clothes, uh, do any philanthropic efforts. Um, it's on them mm. to pay for, for school, like all this kind of stuff um, yeah. for their travel, but he helps them at an early age to start a business. And one of his kids did a million of revenue while I was a teenager living at home. I mean, how cool Jeez. is that? Like that's legacy, right? So. It's awesome, man. It's, you know, it really is coming down to helping them understand who they are, the value that they have in the world. You know, going back to that confidence thing, not, of course, not being, um, you know, just an egomaniac, but having the confidence to be able to stand and weather any storm so they can be uh, abundant in a value creator a fountain versus a drain. So dude, that's, that's beautiful. I love that. And I, I love to connect with other entrepreneurs who are kind of on that same journey. It seems like, you know, I've got again, four kids and, and um, just, I, I didn't have that same experience that I want from my kids um, that you can really do anything and you can have a tremendous impact on the world. You know, our family's involved in, in anti-human trafficking um, efforts and and giving to orphanages and they support kids in Peru and just crazy stuff like that. So, dude, props to you. I love that. Um, and uh, with that being said, what would you say is kind of next for your family, your wife, and how old are your kids? My kids are twelve and fourteen. Okay. And how long have you been married? I've been married. It'll be eighteen years June first. Yeah, I'll be eighteen years September seventh. So nice, nice. So and what's I, I was telling my kids, I'm like, hey, I think marriage is awesome. And you better make sure you marry right because it's not easy. Like right. we joke about my wife being married only one time, but to five different people because of who I've been <laughs> over the years. Like, holy cow, you know? Dude. Like we can't even remember who those two people are that got married yeah. June first, two thousand two. You know, like, yeah. man, just little pups. And uh you really gotta be committed to evolve and grow mm -hmm. together and to have difficult conversations and you know, like we literally had the biggest fight of our marriage two weeks ago. It, the good news is it was extraordinarily short and coming out the other side, we've never felt more connected and in, in, mm. in love. And it's also interesting because we were at dinner with our kids last night and, we're, and I'm like asking them, how would you rate mom and I's marriage on a scale of one to 10? And like, I don't know. They didn't know how to rate it because they just don't know. I'm like, dude, we yeah. have an extraordinary marriage, but they don't know because it's not bad because we rarely right, fight right. in front of them. And when we do, we're like, we fought in front of our son in Seattle and he started to cry and we're like, Hey, this is normal conversations adults have. <laughs> we're fine. Like yeah. you're just not used to it. And once I got in an argument with my wife, when I uh, came into the house after work one day and, and I ended up, you know, yelling and then driving around the block and coming at, back and saying, Hey, let me do this again as a better human being. Right. That, for that second, I drove around the block. The kids were scared. They're just not used to yeah. like, dude. I mean, honestly, my parents are freaking awesome, but they fought a lot when we grew up. I mm -hmm. mean, hell, maybe it's because they had three kids that were, you know, uh, we, we fought a lot and we're crazy, <laughs> but you know, so I admire what they got through, but 
but you know, I feel like leading by example is really the key in all of this. Yeah, man. Props and shout outs to the wives for putting up with it, especially on this. How scary would the world be without women, dude? <laughs> I think about this often. Thank God for a woman's touch. And yeah. like all my major breakthroughs is my wife holding the mirror up to me where she understood and I didn't yet, but I thought I was the badass. Hey, I make the money. Like, you know, yeah. like, like we're a great team, you know, yeah. but damn, she's really been um, very insightful. Like I remember I had this Bentley, right. And I remember taking it to a hotel and they didn't park it up front. I'm like, the hell's wrong with them? She goes, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> like, really? That's where you're at now. You're this big of a deal. Oh, oh my man. God. And I'm like, huh? Yeah, I just, I'm an asshole. I forgot. That's good. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder in a, in a nice way and still give me a hug later, you know? <laughs> yeah, they keep us healthy and humble, man. I love it. Good, good. Um, so who would you say has been your biggest, aside from your wife, maybe, and your a family member, who's, who's really inspired you the most and why? Well, definitely like my grandfather. Um, mm. So there's, there's a couple reasons. One is, even though he's a coal miner, he had two side jobs that were entrepreneurial. He played the accordion in a band and they mm -hmm. used to travel and get paid to perform. And he had a TV repair shop and sold Zenith TVs back in the day. And so I got to mm. you know, go with him from the time I was a little kid and he'd win these community awards and we just had a special bond. And so I felt like he had a rational belief in me and unconditional love before there was ever any evidence that I could amount to anything. Right. But he always, you know, That's he always supported me. He was, and even when I made scary decisions, like to become an entrepreneur, which was scary for him because his dad was an entrepreneur, couldn't put food on the table and eventually had to leave to come to the United States from Italy. And it was seven years of being separated from his family before he saw wow. them again. So you can understand that there's a, a hesitation. Yeah. But man, when I made it work, he just would get teary eyed and grab my arm and tell me how wow. proud he was, you know, like it was really meaningful. And so he just, he definitely invested heavily in me and that really meant a lot. And I still think about him often, you know, and just, I think he's had a, a, a tremendous and lasting impact on me that I'll never forget. As a matter of fact, I wrote my dad a letter just a month ago because he had a really special bond with my son, especially my, you know, my oldest when he was young, being the yep. first grandson on both sides or just grandchild. Um, and, you know, right now he's a teenager, so he's a little bit more isolated and a little bit mm -hmm. more, you know, quiet and introverted. And so I just wrote my dad. I'm like, you probably have no idea the level of impact you've made on him that mm -hmm. he may never even tell you because he might not even recognize it until, he, right. until you're gone, you know, because mm -hmm. I feel like one of my regrets was not telling my grandfather everything on his deathbed because I was trying mm -hmm. to minimize or mute myself with the rest of the family around. And, right. you know, I think he knew and I've written the letter and I actually wrote it and sent it to my mom. Um, just so somebody would read it. And, you know, it was like what I really wanted to say in those last words. But I, I find that we all as human beings tend to lower ourselves to not upset other people. And it's mm -hmm. one of the most dangerous things we could do. Yes, mm -hmm. you might lose relationships over being fully expressed in who you are because other people right. are scared. But don't lose yourself because of it. Because right. those that truly love you and love themselves will be along for the ride. And anyone who falls off, it's not because they don't love you. It's because they just haven't figured out how to love themselves yet. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the, I think some of the most challenging things is people who don't understand your journey you know, and how you deal with it. So how have you personally dealt with that when people just, they have like, dude, you're out of the norm and you're kind of crazy, Garrett. What are you doing? How have you handled that 
is that something that you consistently deal with that you have to figure out or do you have a good solution or advice for people who deal with that? No, I figured that out. I think it happened in my twenties, you know, like, Mm. like it just, it, like it just kind of, it, it was like a magnet that either attracted people or it was flipped the other way and, and repelled people. But that doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. I mean, here's how I handle it, though. I handle it with love. I mean, I, I just get that any level of judgment that someone brings is more about them than about me. And how do I know that? Oh, right. Because I know when I'm judging what it's right. really about. Judgment is a way that we try to prevent embarrassment. And embarrassment is usually that we don't feel like that we're fully accepted or like it's us being chameleons. And dude, this is a major insight for me is in my twenties, I grew up in Utah, but I'm not Mormon. So I had this whole thing of being a chameleon, like, Oh, this is a Mormon person. I'm not going to swear. I'll never drink in front of them because I want to do business. Right. So I'm muting who I am in order to be accepted. And really the reality is one of my very best friends, rich, who I mentioned earlier is Mormon. And I'm, I am exactly who I am all the time around him. And yeah. he's a Mormon bishop and has me come and speak to his kids. So he's mm-hmm. at a singles ward. So like, like I just found that every time I wasn't myself, it was like setting up an actor that I had to become. And right, each right. actor has a form of a lie that's disconnected from reality. And to manage all those actors is impossible. So it's easier just to be yourself. And I'm myself around my parents, man. Like, which is yeah. crazy because, you know, like, I sat down and my dad grew up Mormon. And I had a tobacco pipe with him the other day. Like I like nice. to smoke tobacco once or twice a month out of a pipe, you know? And, and then Me it turns too, out my right? mom's like, my mom's like, Hey, did you know your grandfather smoked a tobacco pipe every week on Sunday, but only once a week? I'm like, Oh my God. And it was this beautiful experience. Wow. So connected, but I wouldn't even admit that back then. I'm like, Oh, people are going to judge me. Well, of course they're going to judge me based upon their beliefs, their insecurities. Yeah, yeah. And it's fine. It's going to happen, but we judge when we're in scarcity and mm. scarcity is irrational. So we've got to stop being afraid of those judgments. And dude, I'll, I'll, I'll be real candid with you. Like I'm breaking free of that in a way that's insane because mm-hmm. I, I've been putting together this one man show where inside of that show, I act four different characters. I do stand up comedy for a couple of minutes. I sing and play guitar. Wow. I, <laughs> I then play a song I've been struggling with learning um, for a moment on the guitar. And then at the end, I dance. I dance, wow. dude. I'm, I used dude. to call, they called me chord in high school because I was not coordinated. All right. There's no choreographer coming in with the dancing either. Yeah. Right. It's just simply an expression of freedom because the entire message of the one man show is expression over perfection. Mm. Right. Expression over perfection that we all have an artist of some way, shape or form. I don't draw my art, but I write my art, right? So mm. so like if we can all embrace that artist inside, like when we were kids, I just think we have a lot more fun in life. And yeah. we're not just trying to please everyone else, which is hard, dude. I've been a people pleaser a lot of my life, yeah. like trying to mediate. But every time I mediate, I take on someone else's pain that's not really mine and it starts mm. to become pressure and therefore I'm less productive. So. I found that we just have to be powerful enough to go through the pain, the pain, just stand in it with love and compassion. Cause on the other side of any pain is connection. And if we're mm-hmm. willing to be a stand for it with the person that's going through it, whether it's ourselves or someone else and address it head on, even if it's uncomfortable that our life gets better. Heck yes. Is that something that you did just because it was uncomfortable for you or is you're just passionate about it? I mean, to do stand up comedy seems a little intimidating, especially yeah. with how you're doing it. 
I have two stand-up shows this week and I, I'm not intimidated about stand-up comedy at all. Now, have I been? Hell yeah. So this mm-hmm. guy, Barry Katz, who's a manager in the comedy world, he was flying to Utah and we were performing comedy in a round, right? So it's almost like a, an, a stadium, right? Where you like a basketball court, like in the b- bottom. And so I'm like, damn, a round. I've never done stand-up comedy in a round. And Barry's coming, who represented Chappelle for eight years and Louis C.K. Wow. And, you know, but like I could just, the list yeah. goes on. So I'm like, ah. And I'm like, I would like to do well. So I, about a third of the people in the crowd were there because I invited them and, and they bought tickets. So that was kind of exciting. And what I did is when I woke up that morning, my fingers were tingling because I was so nervous. Mm. And I was like, wait, 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 why am I nervous? I'm only nervous because I'm making it about me. And when I make it about me, it's because I'm worried about Ooh. how I'm going to be perceived or judged or what's going to happen. And I, and I recognize I was suffering the future. I'm suffering something that hasn't happened. Right. So what I did was in the moment, I was actually running an event that day with my clients and I just sat down with them and I go, Hey guys, I, I got everybody tickets yesterday because you said you want to come to the show tonight. Yes. I just love that you're willing to come share this with me. When I finish the stand-up set, I'm going to share why comedy is important, how it connects me to my grandfather, who was my hero, but also connects me to my other grandfather as one of the common things that brought a Catholic family and a Mormon family together. And so mm-hmm. like I'm sitting there sharing this with them. And I said, I don't know why I'm stressed. I've already won. I get to do this. You guys are yeah. coming. A third of the people there know me personally and they're there supporting me. And you know what? As soon as I acknowledge it, my stress drastically decreased mm. because it became less about me and it became about gratitude and acknowledgement that I'd already won. So yeah. I, that night, I, I killed it, dude. Barry decided to represent me after that night. Wow. So that's pretty cool, that's right? That's insane. Like he told me five times that I crushed it. I'm like, is he being Hollywood or did he really <laughs> believe it, you know? And so, so it turns out really great. Then I sent him the one-man show, which he thinks is pretty special. But here's where the one-man show came from. I had a dream. And I'm just listening to my intuition. I'm like, why did I have this dream of directing a Broadway show with one person in it? And I was like, because I was directing my, I was, I was seeing my life. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to do a one-man show. Then I just called the people I knew. Uh, the, had one guy, Bo Eason, I'd watched do a one-man show and talk to him. And then I called Michael Port, who had critiqued me in a small group of 10 people. And it was the most uncomfortable 30 minutes I'd ever experienced on stage. And he said, I said, will you direct this? He goes, hell yeah. And he just sent me a note saying, he goes, dude, your courage is inspiring me. Right. Like I'm just, I'm just choosing like, and I'm just having downloads. Like I just was like, Oh, cool. Like I should dance at the end because that's the ultimate expression of freedom. Oh. And so dude, I did a practice round with some of our clients we had an event with like just a workshop with like 20 of our Mm -hmm. clients and i just said hey do you guys care if i practice with you guys so i did the four characters and then i danced at the end like just and and it was awkward as shit for a minute (laughs) but dude they gave me a standing ovation i hugged everyone there right because and and so the message is really it's easy to be a critic but never as rewarding and we're Mm -hmm. unfortunately the harshest critic in our own lives a lot of times but i'm looking at a wall right now in my office where I've got a picture of myself when I was five, so I can remember any time I'm being harsh on myself, that it's just me being that scared five-year-old, and why, why don't I just love on it instead of it? I'm looking at my neighbor from when I was a little kid named Anna Mae, who always was super 
you know, believed in me and gave me unconditional love. I'm looking at the, the poster for that night from Marcus and Guy that were the headliners that night when mm-hmm. I did the stand-up set. You know, I'm looking at uh, some pictures of my wife and I in Paris. I'm looking at our fa- my family crest. I'm looking at San Giovanni in Italy, a, a, a picture that I took of the map of the city. Like, you know, uh, notes like, right. I just put all these reminders. Like I have a thing where my, it says, what's worth more than gold? And it was from my son when he was just a little kid. And it says my dad. Right. I'm like, mm-hmm. damn. So I just have these reminders about quality of life and, and about what's most important and just recognizing that if I just continue to choose to listen to my intuition, even when it's difficult, have conversations when I'm uncertain or when there's pain and be powerful in those moments to be able to take on whatever someone says and be able to come from love and compassion I just feel like that's why I'm doing the play is a way to have a love bomb on humanity to say, hey, who am I to do this? I don't know. Who am I not to? But who are you not to do whatever your version of the one man show is in your life? I'll share my pain, my emotion, the laughter, everything that I am in that time together. And uh, hopefully we all come out feeling inspired or with a little bit more permission to be ourselves. Man, that's beautiful. You know, it's I love that message. I think it's so crucial in in an age and a society, um, just a world where everybody is trying to be something they're not, trying to protect themselves from just you know the criticism and the views of other people. To have something like that to to I think stand on and be an example for other people, dude, is is incredible. So massive props to you, man. That inspires me. I love it. I'm glad to hear that, man. I'm really glad to hear that. Any last words of wisdom or if there were one thing that people could take away from this, what would you say it would be? Life is what you choose to make it. You're the author. Don't allow society. Don't allow, um, you know, uncertainty. Don't allow fear to be the reason you choose to be where you're at. Know that there's going to be mistakes along the way. Those mistakes are some of the lessons and ingredients as painful as they may be at times. But Mm -hmm. the reality is like the real work to do is to figure out how to love life. That comes down to loving ourselves Mm -hmm. and then being more abundant so we can give a lot more of ourselves to the world without sacrificing who we are. Stop sacrificing for others at the cost of who you are. That's the key. Dude, where can people find you? Where should we send folks? I think uh, wealthfactory.com forward slash mega kit, M-E-G-A-K-I-T. They can get okay. two of my books on download. You know, um, yeah. that's that's a pretty great place to go. Um, and there's also a cash flow kit there as well. Um, and once again, that's just on me. You give me your information so that we can stay in touch with you. We send about seven emails a month. Every seventh one, we usually offer some way to work with us or buy something from us, which you can choose to do or not. And, you know, that happens for about seven months. And then after seven months, it's usually whatever we're up to that's brand new, we might, you know, reach out to you. So I think that we're really reasonable about that and high quality. But yeah, we're, we're, we're in exchange for your information, we're giving you a bunch of value so we can build a bridge of a relationship. That's awesome, man. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And absolutely, you guys go check out uh, Garrett's stuff. Uh, If nothing else, go get the books that I mentioned earlier. We'll put links to that uh, in here as well. So Garrett, thanks so much for your time, man. Really, really appreciate your investment uh, into the folks who are listening. Hey, thanks, man. It was uh, it was really great to do this with you and appreciate everything that you're up to. And yeah, you just ask great questions and thanks for letting me go on some rants there for a while. 
Oh, that was great. Thanks, bro. Thanks for listening. Discover how you can start building wealth with real estate, even without experience, in our free book, Why Real Estate and How to Get Started, by visiting wealthcapholdings.com slash book. That's wealthcapholdings.com slash book.